I want you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus, and that is the third book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Yes, you heard me right. It's Leviticus. To tell you a little bit about the food that I like, for those of you who know that I love food, I love duck meat. Yes, you heard me right. Duck meat. Not just duck meat, but duck eggs too. Very hard to find duck eggs in the valley. So I knew that there is a place, if you go down to Los Angeles, and there were a couple of Asian stores there, there I knew I would find duck eggs. So when I went to LA, I went to one of those stores. I was excited, and I went to the store and found that there were duck eggs in the store. In fact, they were boiled. So that made it easy for me. All I had to do was bring them home and eat it. So I couldn't resist it, but I decided to drive back home. Took the long travel back home, but drive from Los Angeles, you know what that is like. I came home, sat down comfortably, and started breaking open the shell. As I started breaking the shell, I started to realize that it appeared to be a little different. Uh, the color was different. And to my surprise, I was seeing what my eye couldn't believe. So I called my wife, wanted to make certain that she was seeing what I was seeing. I was seeing some kind of beak and some feathers. Now, you know, I know it, uh, the eggs hatch, and probably all the way from Los Angeles coming home in the warm car, it could have, but it was a boiled egg. So... I was rather surprised. On some more investigation and checking online, thankful that we can actually go online and do all these kind of research, I found out that this was some kind of delicacy called balut, an egg that has been incubated for 18 to 21 days and then boiled. It is a Filipino or a Vietnamese delicacy. Well. It was supposed to be nutritious and high in protein. Now, those of you who know me personally, you know that I love to eat, and I'm, you know that I love to try out different cuisines, and you tell me about a place that you get good food, and I'll go there, and that's what I do. But this one, I couldn't resist. I, I couldn't eat. It was different. It didn't even look right. <laughs> Why am I narrating the story to you? Well, because to some of you, the book of Leviticus may be like Balut. And to others who are still wondering about the book of Leviticus, it may sound like a brand of jeans with ticks on them. Levi ticks. I wonder how many Christians have literally read through the book of Leviticus. Maybe when I announced that I would be preaching through Leviticus, verse by verse, there may have been two responses. One of two responses. For those of you who don't like your pastor very much, may have thought to yourselves, good, I hope he becomes a burned offering by the time he finishes the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and then there is a group of people who love me and would say, I couldn't bear the loss of my pastor becoming a burned offering. I hope he preaches something else. There are 66 books in the Bible. Why go into the book of Leviticus? 
Well, then there's another group probably who would say, is the pastor really angry with us that he wants to turn us into a burnt offering? Well, rightfully so. Leviticus is a book. It's a hard book to study. It's a book in which many Christians get lost. That's why it's called as the Bermuda Triangle of the Bible. Many Christians who decide to read the Bible in a year crash land in the book of Leviticus. After all, what can be found in the book of Leviticus when you look at it, the first seven chapters has to do with sacrifices. And then the next chapters on uncleanness, and leprosy, and bodily emissions, and fluids, and so forth. How does it even remotely connect to our church today? Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ referred to Leviticus 19 more than any other verse in the Bible? Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 is used by New Testament multiple times. In total, there are about 40 references in the book of, uh, of the book of Leviticus in the New Testament. If you've seen Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, you have Leviticus 25, 10, and to proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants inscribed on the bell. The book of Leviticus is important to understand the book of Hebrews. One of the leading expositors, W.A. Criswell, said Leviticus is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. Without an understanding of the principles of atonement and holiness found in the book of Leviticus, much of New Testament would make no sense because the book of Leviticus actually foreshadows the coming of Christ, the person of Christ, and the work of Christ. So although the book of Leviticus is kind of a book that has been shunned by some Christians, it is the first book to be studied by a Jewish boy. The book of Leviticus in the Hebrew is called Waikara, which actually goes with verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 1, which says, and he called. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Bible, assigned the title Leviticon, means pertaining to the Levites. Because as you read the book of Leviticus, you come across a lot of principles that the Levites had to follow relating to the ministry of the priests. So when you look at the book of Leviticus, we can outline the book of Leviticus as follows. So you have chapters 1 through 7, and for those of you who have managed to get the book on Leviticus, we're actually having that outside in the foyer, so in case you don't have it, maybe grab it next Sunday, you can take notes. If you look through that in chapter 1, chapters beginning with chapter 1, chapter 1 through 7 has to do with the law of sacrifices. The five great sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. Completely voluntary. It was not required. If a person felt like he needed to do it, he did it. Uh, it was not forced upon him. And in chapters 1 through 7, you have chapters 1 through 5 that goes with the different offerings. And then from the perspective of the worshiper, 
And then chapter 6 and 7 has to do with the same sacrifices that I mentioned in chapters 1 through 5, but now from the perspective of the priests. So chapters 1 through 7 has to do with sacrifices. Chapters 8 through 10 has to do with the institution of the Aaronic priesthood. And they were only the priests. And then chapters 11 through 15, you have the laws relating to ritual uncleanness, how to deal with impurity. There was a distinction between what is clean and unclean. And then chapter 16 had to do with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, a yearly ceremony to actually remove all sin and impurity. And then chapters 17 to 27 has to do with the private worship of the nation of Israel. So that's how the book of Leviticus is divided. Who wrote the book of Leviticus? It was written by Moses. And the purpose of the book is to provide guidelines to the priests and to the people. The theme of the book is holiness. God's holiness requires the holiness of his people. So to get into the study of the book of Leviticus, let us go through a brief overview of the first two books of the Bible, Genesis, chapter, Genesis and the book of Exodus. Genesis, as you know, is the book of beginnings. God created Adam and Eve. Humanity was created to dwell with God. Yahweh would be their God, and they will be Yahweh's people. And as God created the heavens and the earth, he saw everything he had created. He blessed it. He sanctified it. Man was created in God's image. No other creation was made in God's image. This entitled humanity to, uh, to have fellowship with God and to rule and subdue the earth. To be, fruit, to fruit, be fruitful and to multiply the earth and be in perfect communion with God. But you know what happened? Mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were driven out from the Garden of Eden. And God stationed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer could man commune with God in the Garden. Man was driven out from the Garden, from the heights of Eden. We know that Eden was on a mountain from the heights of Eden. And then you see that man is driven out, and then you see death coming into the picture with the death and burial of different people. In fact, the last, book, last chapter in the book of Genesis wraps up with the death of Joseph in Egypt. Man lost the presence of God. Man lost the purpose for which he was created. And from then on, Adam has been wandering away from the mountain of God. Then we come to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we read that Israel was redeemed from Egypt. Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. See three distinct realities. In the Passover, there was a slaying of the Lamb or a young goat which was sacrificed. The blood was applied on the doorpost. And lastly, they would eat the meat of the Lamb that was killed. So having been redeemed from Egypt, God now gives Moses the design for a tabernacle, a structure in which God would come and reside with man. 
God was going to make a way for his residence among his people. And so Israel arrives at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And you find God speaking to them from the mountain through Moses. And we read in Exodus chapter 25, very specifically, where God tells Moses that they need to make a sanctuary, a tabernacle. Why? That, they, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. God prescribes the, the way the tabernacle needs to be built. Why? So that I may come and dwell among them. This is the first time after the Garden of Eden that God is now dwelling with his people. And we further read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, that the tabernacle is completed. In fact, here we read in Exodus 40, 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now God comes down from Mount Sinai and resides among his people. And this is where we come into the book of Leviticus, where God's now going to give the nation of Israel instructions on how they were to approach the Shekinah glory, how they were to live so that God would now continue to dwell in their midst. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 1 and read verses 1 through 17. We'll also be approaching Leviticus chapter 6, a portion of it, which goes with Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So here's God's word, which reads, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting and saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange food on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. 
and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of total doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar and on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now turn with me to Leviticus chapter 6. Verses 8 through 13. Now keep in mind, Leviticus chapter 1 was written from the viewpoint of the worshiper. And Leviticus chapter 6, he's giving specific instructions about the burnt offerings in verses 8 through 13. And this he's giving from the viewpoint of the priests. So Leviticus 6, 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his son saying, This is the law of the burnt offerings. The burnt offering shall be on the art of the altar, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall come burning on it on the altar continually, it shall not go out. So, when you are taking a chapter here in the book of Leviticus and you're trying to understand it, I'm going to split it up into three parts. I'm going to explain to you what it means, and then we'll talk about when it was done, and then lastly, how it all applies to us today as a Christian. So let's look at the word of it. So you begin verse 1 in chapter 1, which says, The Lord called Moses. God speaks to Moses from the tent of the meeting from the Holy of the Holies. The tabernacle was God's holy place. Keep in mind that God initially spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Then God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now God speaks to Moses in the tabernacle. What did God tell Moses? Well, we see in verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if any one of you brings an offering, now keep those words there, to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So you have two patterns, two sacrifices there. In chapter 1, as you read, you will see that those three subdivisions very clearly there. There is one set of sacrifice, prescribed animals, that is from the herd. Then there is a second set of prescribed animals from the flock, and we see that from verses 10 through 13. And then lastly, you have another set of prescribed animals, that's the birds, and you see that in verses 14 through 17. So let's look at the first set of burned offerings that is found in verses 3 through 9 of Leviticus chapter 1. It says, if his offering is a burned offering from the herd, that is, from your, from your 
from the cows, from the bulls, from the ox. It has to be a male, so it has to be a bull or an ox. It has to be without blemish. And what would the worshiper do? As you read further down, you find that the worshiper would lay his hand on the animal's head. It meant, it meant leaning hard on the animal's head. It was symbolic of their utter dependence on that animal to appease the wrath of God. So as the, as the worshiper would come with the animal into the tent of meeting, he would come reciting a prayer, obviously a prayer of confession, asking forgiveness for all the sins that they have done. It is said that later on in the nation of Israel, they would start reciting psalms. Psalm 4, Psalm 5, Psalm 40, Psalm 51, Psalm 66. It was not a silent time. They would bring the animal into the tent of meeting, reciting a, a prayer or a psalm as in later days, confessing their sins, recognizing that they are miserable offenders in need of a substitute. Otherwise, they would have to be dying on that altar. And so as they bring the animal, saying this prayer, the priest would then receive the offering, and they would respond by singing Psalm 20 or Psalm 50, letting the offerer or the worshiper know that their sacrifice has been accepted. Now what happens? The worshiper would then kill the animal in the presence of Yahweh. The word there in the Hebrew used for slain or kill is the Hebrew word shahat, meaning the animal was slain in such a way that the blood was entirely drawn out of the animal. And as the blood was drawn out, poured out of the dying animal, the priest would collect the warm, crimson blood and pour it out on the altar, on the sides of the altar. This was symbolic that an animal was dying, was being offered up to God. And the blood was symbolic of the life of the animal. And then the worshiper would flay the burned offering, cut the offering up into pieces. The skin was taken off. And the animal was completely exposed. And then as the animal was cut into pieces, the worshiper would begin cutting with the head, cutting the head of the animal and the fat, removing the fat of the animal. And these pieces would then be arranged on the altar by the priests. And while the priests were doing this, we read in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. You see, the hind legs of the animal that's where the impurities were, the feces and other things. 
And so it was the duty of the worshiper to take the hind part of the animal and take it to something known as a basin or a laver. So you have the, the, the altar, the bronze altar, and right next to it was the laver or the basin. The worshiper would take the hind part of the animal and put it in the basin and wash off all the dirt. Not the priests. It was the worshiper who had to do it. And once he had cleansed all that and cleaned all that and purified all that, then he would take that part and then give it to the priest. And the priest would then arrange those pieces on the altar. And after this was done, the animal was completely burned up. This is why it's called the burned offering. Now, as you follow along in your Bible, you see a second set of offering. It says, if his gift for a burned offering is from the flock, verse 10. That means the sheep or the goats. He shall bring a male without blemish. That also had to be a male without blemish. Wealthier men... People who could afford it, the rich people, could, would bring an ox, a bull. Those who could not afford a bull would bring a sheep or a goat. And then you find in verses 10 through 13 the same process, except the flaying of the skin. Otherwise, pretty much everything else remained the same. And then, if you follow along in your Bible, the next section you find in verse 14. If you cannot afford a sheep or a goat, then you bring a turtle dove, or you bring a pigeon. And you see that in verses 14 through 17. In case of turtle dove or pigeon, the high priest would twist up the head. They did the major job. And they would drain the blood of the bird so that it could be burned up. And then they would give the bird back to the worshiper. Why? Because there was something in the bird that needed to be removed, which was the unclean part of the bird. It's called a crop. For those of you who understand what the crop is, it is part of the intestine of the bird. It is where the bird ate, collected all the stuff, and then while the bird sat, it would go into the stomach and digest itself. So it's pre-digested material that is in the crop. It was considered unclean. Priests were not allowed to touch anything unclean. And so it was the duty of the worshiper who would then take the crop out and then give the bird back to the priest who would then burn the bird completely on the altar. Three sets of sacrifices. Ox, goat or sheep, bird. If you cannot afford an ox, bring goat or sheep. If you cannot afford a goat or sheep, bring a bird. Everyone could come into the presence of, the God, uh, presence of God, but in the way prescribed by Yahweh. A phrase that keeps repeating itself in chapter 1 you see that at the end of verse 9 is the phrase, pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
Then again, you see that phrase in verse 13, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Again, you find it in verse 17, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That means as the animal was consumed by the fire and the sacrifice was completely done, it was accepted, and the Bible says God was pleased. As the, the, the smoke went up, God was pleased with it, with the offering. So that's the what of the offering. Now let me take you to the when of the offering. When did they do these burnt offerings? Well, it was an essential part of temple worship. They mentioned this. You read, if you read Psalm 20, Psalm 40, Psalm 50, Psalm 51, Psalm 66, all mentions to the burnt offering. It is seen in the Old Testament in various times. The first time we see burnt offering is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 where Noah offered burnt offerings to the Lord. Second time you find as God offered, uh, sorry, God instructed Abraham uh, to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And you know how God provided Abraham a ram in place of Isaac, and the ram was offered as a burnt offering to the Lord in Genesis chapter 22. God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, so that they can go and offer a burnt offering. Read, read about this in Exodus chapter 10. We read in Numbers 28 that each Sabbath day they would do a burnt offering. We also see that at the beginning of each month they did a burnt offering. Numbers 28. Uh, every time there was a new grain festival, uh, a feast of weeks, a feast of trumpets, any sacred day, they did offer the burnt offerings. It was offered in conjunction with sacrifices, other sacrifices. If you will read this as we go along in the next weeks in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 of Leviticus, every time those sacrifices were done, burnt offerings was offered along with it. It was kind of part and parcel of that offering. There were also special occasions when a sacrifice, when a burnt offering was given, especially when a woman who gave birth, uh, she had to go through the cleansing because she was considered unclean after a birth, and then she had to go through that process of cleansing. There was a burnt offering. A leper who was cleansed of leprosy had to go through a burnt offering. Um, if a man or a woman was discovered with bodily uh, fluid discharge, uh, they were required to go through burnt offering. A Nazarite who contacted or came in touch with a dead person had to go through a burnt offering. So it was kind of part and parcel of their life. It was all the time. In fact, if you read Leviticus chapter 6, and we read that section there, in Leviticus chapter 6, they were supposed to burn this. It was morning and evening. And if there was no sacrifices being done, the priests were pretty busy keeping the fire just burning. It was kind of an ongoing thing. I mean, if you think about the, uh, the priests, you may think about the priests wearing white garbs, you know, in a nice dress. No, they had blood smeared, the smelling of blood. They were basically busy people. If there were no sacrifices, if there was no one coming to the temple, which was hardly a case, they had to be busy making sure that the fire was kept burning. And you read about that in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. So there was no downtime. So we've seen when they did the worship. So we've seen what of burnt offering. We have seen the when of burnt offering. And now 
let's see how it all applies to us. And say, what in the world is this, Pastor? How do, how, what do we do with this today in our church? And so this is where we're going to be focusing on the how of the burnt offering, how it all applies to us. Three things. First, God cares how we worship. God cares how we worship him. And we see in the book of Leviticus chapter 1 that when they brought a burnt offering, whether it be from the herd or from the flock, it had to be male, a male sacrifice. Why? Because male sacrifices were expensive. Male animals were expensive. Uh, nothing against females, but just that's the way it is. And we read that in verses 3 and verse 10. It could not be an unproductive, useless creature. It had to be a male, and it had to be without blemish, meaning it had to be perfectly blameless. No defects at all in the sacrifice. That means an Israelite would bring their best to the altar. Whether you are bringing an ox, whether you're bringing a sheep, whether you're bringing a lamb, you bring your best. If you can afford an ox, bring the best ox. If you can afford a sheep or a goat, bring your best sheep or goat. And if you just can't afford any of those things, bring your bird. Don't bring a sick, dying animal. Period. Just because Spotty was playing around in the field and Spotty fell and broke his leg, he said, now I, I don't know what I can do with Spotty. Next time I take him to the temple, I'll just offer Spotty up on the altar. Now. That's not what you do. You bring a perfect male animal without blemish. You remember that story in the Old Testament in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 where David counted his army and there was a pestilence in the camp. And in order to survive that, he had to offer sacrifice. So he goes up to Aruna, the Jebusite, who offered to give him the threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord. And he was giving it free to David. And this is what King David said in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 to 25. I'll just read that place. It says, I will not offer burnt offerings unto the Lord of that which cost me nothing. I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What do you give to the Lord when you worship the Lord? All of life is to be a worship. It's not just what you do on Sunday mornings. It is to be done every day of your life. And the question to ask yourself is, what is it that you give to the Lord? Is it bringing your leftovers to the Lord? I remember growing up, my parents would always make sure, they would tell me, Sam, when you, grow, when you start working, you need to always make sure you give a one-tenth of it to the Lord. Now, my parents, I mean, I've explained the whole thing about tithing and giving. We've talked about it, and it's available as a sermon. Tithing is not the same as giving. If you were to look at tithing, the Old Testament, Jew gave almost 23 to 25 percent of their income to the Lord. New Testament, it's more giving. It's voluntary it's grace-giving, because all money belongs to the Lord. I mean, if you were to use the word tithing 
then we should be giving 24%, not 10%. You get that? So, but, you know, that is, my parents taught me about how to give to the Lord. And so when it came time for me to give to the Lord, I struggled with it because I loved my income. I had worked hard for it. And to give a tenth of it to the Lord, that's ridiculous. I mean, it seemed bizarre to me. And I had a thousand reasons not to give my best to the Lord. And I'll call it giving my best to the Lord because it was taking out of your paycheck and giving off a portion to the Lord. And I would come up with reasons like, well, the church won't use the money wisely. Literally, I would say that. The church won't use my money wisely. Or maybe there's someone else who gives to the Lord. I don't have to give. I worked hard for it. Or I've got this XYZ expense. I've got to make this car payment at the end of the month. And so maybe after I give everything, I take care of everything. At the end, if I have something left over, then I will give it to the Lord. Well, and finally, when it came time to give, I would pull out my wallet, look at all the denomination bills, and pull out the lowest denomination and put it in the offering plate. You see the mentality I had? It's called the yard sale mentality. We have this in our country, right? Yard sale. Someone's junk is someone else's treasure. With this yard sale mentality, we think God is happy with our junk, with our leftovers. And this is what I did as a young man. Many times I would just wait until the end of the month to see if there was something left over to give to the Lord. Now, I don't want you to overthink this. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I remember at another church after my senior pastor preached on giving, uh, a brother in the church came up to me and said, is he telling me to sell my boat? I said, no, that's not what he meant. So don't overthink this. I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that you got to go sell your boat. I'm not preaching against taking vacations. I'm not preaching against buying a nice home. But what I'm asking you today is this. Is your heart in the right place? What does it cost you to be a Christian? Does it cost you anything to worship God? Does it cost you anything to call yourself a Christian in this country? Does being a Christian cost you anything at all? A Christianity that costs you nothing? Someone said means nothing. When you think about giving, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse, verses 1 through 5, the poor Macedonians, they were poor. But when they saw there was a need in the church of Jerusalem, the Bible says they gave out of their poverty. And beyond their means. And not only did they give out of their poverty beyond their means. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4 says. They were begging us earnestly. For the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, we read another passage. It says, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Are you giving from your heart? Are you giving sacrificially? You see, giving to the Lord is not an accounting issue. You don't have to sit down and calculate your one-tenth to the last penny as you give to the Lord. The money that you have, beloved, belongs to the Lord. But as someone said, I want you to hear this. True worship is not measured by what you give, but what you hold back. And some of us hold back a lot. Would you please turn with me to Malachi? Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Verses 6 through 10. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? It says, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how? How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And he says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Try doing that to your governor. Will he accept it? He will not. Then why do you take God for granted? Why do you have this yard sale mentality when it comes to the things of God? That he is happy with the change that he gets. I mean, this is modeled for us in Leviticus chapter 1, right? And if you don't have a bull, what do you do? Give your sheep or the goat. If you don't have your sheep or goat, then what do you do? Just bring your turtle doves. You remember Mary offered her turtle doves. They were poor people, but they gave from what they had. And now if you don't have turtle doves, you don't have pigeons, guess what? Just crawl yourself to the altar and say, Lord, this is what I have. I give myself to you. Remember Romans chapter 12? What do we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? It says, I appeal to you, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? That's what you do. You drag yourself up. And so, Lord, here I am. Take me. Take me everything. Take mine everything. I die to myself. You live through me. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God cares how we worship Him. Let me go to the second truth here. God is a holy God. And we 
are a sinful people. God is holy and we are sinful. His holiness demands a corresponding purity in his people. That's why when he said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming and I'm dwelling with you, I want to make sure that the place that I'm living in is clean. So if you have uncleanness in the camp, I cannot live with you. I cannot live with an unclean people. Psalm 24, verse 3, very clearly. I mean, this is, I love this verse because it's a biblical theology that's presented here. It says, Foo shall ascend up to the hill of the Lord. In Genesis, when man sinned, man was driven away from the hill of the Lord. And now the psalmist is saying, Foo shall ascend up to the will of the Lord, up to the hill of the Lord. And the answer is given in verses 4 through 6. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Psalm 15 says the same thing. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. You see, God's holiness demands our holiness. This is what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus chapter 11 says, Consecrate yourself. I'm a holy God. Be holy, for I'm holy. Don't defile yourselves with, with anything that's there. You should be a holy people. And in light of God's holiness, beloved, we are miserable offenders. Do we realize that? You see, but in our culture, we have a low view of sin. I mean, theoretically, Christians will say, yes, I'm a sinner. I agree with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But practically speaking, do we accept the fact that we are sinners? If you go up to a person and tell them to confess their sins, they will look at you. They'll stare at you as if asking you, are you judging me? Or they would say, you know, I'm not perfect. Well, we're not talking about those things. What we're talking is a simple fact. Have you recognized that you have offended a holy God? And is there ever a time in your life when you lived your life and you have not offended a holy God? We don't have that because we have an exalted view of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. We have very high self-esteem in this culture. It's not a lack of self-esteem. It's a high self-esteem. And so we don't see God for who he is. He's a holy God. And we cannot stand before him because we are sinful beings and God is holy. That's the second thing. We need to recognize we are, we are sinful people and God is holy. Now, here's where the third point comes in. The third truth that I want to drive through in this passage. And that is God requires a substitutionary sacrifice. God requires a substitutionary sacrifice to make atonement. You see, the burnt offering was one way for unholy, sinful people 
to even draw near and dwell in the presence of a holy God. And God in His mercy allowed sinful people to offer a ransom payment for sins so that they might escape the death penalty. As the worshiper places his hand on the animal, it signified that he's associating himself with that animal. The guilt of the worshiper was transferred to the animal, and the animal died in place of the worshiper. And as the worshiper pressed hard on the animal's head, the guilt was transferred to that animal. So you're looking at that animal that's killed, that you just slaughtered, and the blood is pouring out, and you're looking at that animal, and you're saying to yourselves, I should have been there. I, sh I should have been in place of that animal. You're identifying yourselves with that animal. You're saying, my guilt is upon his head. You're saying, he should have been on the, I should have been on the altar, but in my place, this innocent animal is dying for me. And as the smoke went up to the heavens, and as you smell the smell of burned flesh, it was a reminder that you should have been on that altar. And the Bible says, as the smoke came up, God smelled the aroma and says, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am expiated. I am pleased. My wrath has been satisfied. And now we are at peace. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Every time the worshiper smelt the burnt flesh, every time the worshiper went into the temple, as the child grew up in a nation, a nation of Israel, and as the child witnessed all this, right from the time he was grown, to the, to, 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 from a young child to the time he was grown, he would see the slaughter of animals, he would see the bleeding of, he would hear the bleeding of animals, he would hear the, the smell, the stench, the, 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 the pungent smell, and he would, he would, he would see all this. And he would remind yourselves, remind themselves, I'm not worthy. I should have been there, but in my place lies that animal. That animal became my substitute, became my substitute. And the fire kept burning from morning through evening, through night. And it went days and days and days. And you could go to the temple offer the sacrifice and come out of the temple and you have an argument with your wife on your way back home. Anyone doesn't have an argument with their wives? Or is it only me? You have an argument with your wife. Oh, you got to go back to the temple. You got to offer the burnt offering again. The priest looks at you. Johnny, you come back? Yeah. I had an argument with my wife. Every time. And it just went on until one day Somewhere near the Jordan River, a man who was wearing camel skin, eating locusts and honey, who would believe him, cries out, looking at Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Time out. 
What are you saying? I know of the lamb that died on the altar in my place. I know how I desperately wanted to go back because every time I sinned, it was a reminder that I should have been on the altar, but I had to take the lamb back. Now you're telling me, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the old world? Yes, you heard it right. My friend, and this is how this chapter applies to you and me. On Calvary's cross, the Lamb of God was crucified. Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully man, that he might be the perfect sacrifice, male, without blemish, slain from the foundation of the world to take away the sins that fulfilled the Levitical offering as he became an offering for sin on the cross. He was slain on the cross of Calvary. His blood was shed for our sins. He died upon the cross as my substitute. And as you go to the Lamb of God, and as you press your hand heavy upon the head of the Lamb of God, who was slain on your behalf, your guilt is placed on him, your sins are placed on him, and his innocence, and his righteousness, and his perfection is given to you. He becomes your substitute, and now God can dwell in you. As he seals you with the promised Holy Spirit, God dwelling with you. That's what Emmanuel means, Christ with us, God with us. And why? Because the Lamb of God satisfied the wrath of God against your sin. And you're made a child of God, adopted into his kingdom. You don't need any other substitute, do you? Do you need to go back to the temple and offer sacrifices? He did it once and for all upon the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to see the richness of your word. Thank you for dying for us upon the cross. A reminder as we look at Calories class, uh, we should have been there on the center cross. But you took our place. So thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.